Now, you guys all remember what Hebrews was about. The goal of the author of the book of Hebrews was to point people in a problematic time, problematic times in their lives, no matter what they were going through, physically, emotionally, or spiritually, was to try and point them to the answer to all of their problems, to the one who could cure everything, take care of all of their issues. In the big picture, there is no other answer to anything in life than this one answer, the one who truly is above all, as we sing about, that is greater than anything on this earth, and that is Jesus Christ. So the author of Hebrews is really trying to get people to say, listen, it's all about Jesus. It's all, I don't care what you're going through. It's all about Jesus. I don't care what your problem is. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is the answer no matter what. And so having went through that book where over the last several months we've been pointing people to who Jesus is, to what Jesus accomplished, that he is truly the answer to life, I felt like we should look at an author of a book who would know that Jesus is the answer to life because he knew Jesus like few others. This disciple is mentioned more times than anybody else in the four Gospels besides Jesus himself. In that, we have story after story of his successes. But just as important, we have story after story of his failures. We are able to see that he was a great man of faith, that he is a hero in the faith, and yet we're able to see his humanity. When I look at this disciple, I can connect with him because he's somebody who confessed Jesus and yet he also denied Jesus. He was somebody who pray, was praised by Jesus and somebody who was yet rebuked by Jesus. He was somebody who walked away for a season in their life from Jesus and yet was restored by Jesus. And in the end, when it was all said and done, he was an apostle for the kingdom of God, a leader of the faith in the early church, and he gave his life for who and what he believed in. This disciple, Peter, he's always given me hope because I can so relate to his ups and downs in life to his successes, like I described, and even to those times where he was angry, he was slow to listen and quick to speak, and times that he blew it. He's somebody that I can say when I look at his life in the Bible and how he was truly a hero of the faith and think, you know what? He's just like me. As far as I'm concerned, Peter could have been born in Smelterville, worked at Bunker Hill, and still accomplished everything that he did in the gospel. He's a miner, he's a logger, he's a fisherman, he's you and I. And it's important for us to be able to look at his life and say, if Peter can do it, so can I. The same God in Peter is the same God in those who choose to receive Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. And so as we look at his letter that he wrote, it was probably about 30 years after his savior, his teacher, his mentor, his, his close friend, 
died on the cross, was resurrected, and ascended into heaven. 30 years later, he pens this letter. 30 years of growth, 30 years of, of wisdom, 30 years of experience. This was through 30 years of people hearing the good news and accepting Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. 30 years, listen, of not a bunch of individual Christians that, who decide they want to do life individually and run rampant across the face of the earth, but because they chose to gather together. 30 years of the church being built around the earth that he steps into this scenario and chooses to write a letter, not to one church like most of Paul's writings, but to a group of churches who were spread throughout modern-day Turkey at that time, suffering for who they believed in. Is that not a common theme in the Bible? The majority of the letters had to do with the imperfections of the church, Christians, their issues and their sufferings, and pointing them to the one who is their hope. And just like all of Paul's letters, that's exactly what Peter is doing, is he wrote to give them hope. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Peter, of course, describes who he is. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he writes this letter in his introduction to the pilgrims of the dispersion. To the pilgrims. Turn to your neighbor and say, pilgrim. Pilgrim. To the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God. In sanctification of the spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Now in his introduction, Peter addresses Christians in a very unusual way. Unlike Paul, who would often have these standard formal addresses, Peter essentially starts off in John Wayne fashion when he's like, howdy, pilgrims. Right? But his using of the term pilgrim, you have to understand, was setting the tone for the remainder of his letter. It was giving the context for everything that he was about to encourage them in. He wanted them to really grasp who they are. And at the base of that, he called them pilgrims. Now, sometimes in your Bible, depending on the translation, that word will be translated as an alien, sojourner, a foreigner. Essentially, the idea of a pilgrim is somebody who is born in one country that now lives in another country. The concept here is, is a people who know what it's like to live in two completely different worlds. Two completely different worlds. Now, years ago, when I went to Kenya, it's as, as close as I could get to a whole nother world. Mind you, everything I say is, is understandably in the idea that, or in the context that I absolutely loved Kenya, loved the people of Kenya. And so with that, I still want to describe what it was like to go into another world, another country, where no one looked like me. When I looked around, everybody looked different than me. 
people talked different than me. There's people that thought different than me. And there's people who lived different than me. When we would go around and we would go to each city or different villages, you would see that you were the odd one out. It wasn't hard to tell. When you cross into another country, another culture, when you cross into another world, if you would, you will notice that there's some of them that have values that you don't share, speak a language that you can't understand. They will eat food that seems to be strange to you. Now, English is a common language in Kenya, but there are certain papers you could pick up in order to read, and you could not read them because they were in a different language. You could turn on a radio station, and certain radio stations you would not understand because their language was different, and it didn't make sense. If you were standing on a sidewalk, you may be in a place where you could not communicate with anyone. You know, Charles Dickens began his novel, A Tale of Two Cities, with these unforgettable words. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And that, in essence, is Peter's message. Because you are a Christian, you live in two different worlds at the same time. Peter is saying, you know what, there's been a change in your life. You have transferred your allegiance from the world to Jesus. And though you may not have moved physically, you moved spiritually. And so when you look around, you should not be surprised at the fact that there are people around you that do not share your values. That when you listen to what people are saying, that they speak a different language than you. That when you turn on any form of media or open a paper, that it is not something that makes sense to you. Salvation has made you a pilgrim in this world. And yet we have Peter, like a big cowboy who's rode up beside you because he's got your back. And he's wrote this letter to reassure you by telling you as you're suffering, you need to remember who you are. And so in his introduction, he gives us these three descriptions. He says that you were elected by God the Father. Elected. Everybody say elected. It's easy to feel discouraged and defeated. But listen, to know that God chose you. We can go through all these things in life and be down on, on, on our feelings and our emotions and whatever it is that we're battling through. But to know this, that God chose you. He elected you. When he looks out upon all the world, he chose you. Now, I'm somebody that believes in free will. So at the same time, I'd think, you know what? Well, you know what? I chose him. But before I chose him, he chose me. To think that, that God knew me before the beginning of the earth, that he knew what my decision would be, that he knew the plans that he had laid out before me, that he knew of all these things, and yet he was still determined to save me, to save you. He knew what he was doing when he chose you for himself. He chose you. So in other words, what Peter is writing to them is like, listen, pilgrim, you've been chosen. 
Listen, pilgrim, I know things are strange out there, but God has elected you. How many know that should be an encouragement? God chose me in this strange and crazy world. He chose me. He started this thing and he's not finished with it yet. Yet he chose me. The second thing he says is you've been sanctified by God, the Holy Spirit. If you've been in this church very long, you know the word sanctified simply is this Christianese word to be set apart. So the Holy Spirit, when you were elected by God, God came into your life, set you apart. That's, that's the difference. That's what makes you a stranger, a foreigner, an exile. It's what makes you a pilgrim, that you've been set apart from the rest of the world, that, that you were called out of darkness and into light, that there's something completely different about you. But you've got to understand in the process of sanctification to be set apart wasn't just to be set apart and left there. The idea is that you were going to be put to use. You were set apart not just so that you could look good, but you were set apart so that you would serve a purpose. And that in the setting of, of setting apart of you, that God was going to do something special in you and through you. And you know, the great thing about being reminded that we were sanctified by the Holy Spirit is that we've got to understand we weren't sanctified by ourselves. You might be set apart from other people because, I don't know, you're goofy. You know, that, that's on you. You've set yourself apart because you've made yourself weird, different, strange, or, or whatever. But, but we don't need to make ourselves any crazier than people already think we are. God has set us apart for his purpose, for his reason. It's not me that set myself apart. It's the one who sanctified me that set me apart. It's him that did it. And he's doing a work in us and through us. And he will continue to do that work in us and through us until we are in his presence in the end. It is this work that God is doing that sanctifies you and sets you apart in your life. So listen, pilgrim, you've been set apart. The Holy Spirit has set you apart. He's doing a work in you that makes you different. How many know when you're going through something, again, you might be like, why am I going, what is going on? What did I do? And, he's, and like God is saying, oh, listen, pilgrim. I set you apart, and I'm doing a work inside of you. All of a sudden, you're like, oh, wow, yeah. God's the one that set me apart. God's the one that's doing the work inside of me. And then he says these words, sprinkled by the blood of God the Son. What does this mean? This, too, has to do with purpose. There were only three instances in the Bible where blood was sprinkled on people. Three instances. Number one is Exodus chapter 24, verses 5 through 8. It says that the Israelites were sprinkled with blood in the establishment of the old covenant at Mount Sinai. The giving of God's word, the giving of what we would call today, in a sense, his law. But really, it was more than just law. It was the giving of relationship and the acceptance of relationship that took place through the sprinkling of blood. You guys get that? It was the establishment, the sprinkling of blood is what led to the establishment of relationship, a covenantal relationship between a group of people and God himself. 
there was sprinkling of blood. The second time that we see sprinkling of blood is in Exodus chapter 29, verse 21. This has to do with the ordination of Aaron and his sons. Now, if you don't know who Aaron and his sons were, they were the first formal priests of the people. And so there was sprinkling of blood in order to make a people who had been set apart priests. Priest. The third thing was this. It's, it's in Leviticus 14, 6 through 7. The purification ceremony of a leper. What was a leper? A leper is somebody who had a skin disease. They, they looked sick. They were sick. People were afraid of them. They were ostracized. They were set apart in a negative way because people didn't want to be around them and didn't want them to be near them because they didn't want to get what they've got. And so they were set outside the camp. People who were shunned people who went through a lot of challenges physically and emotionally, and yet in order for them to be cleansed and purified, it took the shedding of blood. So I want you to see something in what Peter describes you as. He says, listen, pilgrim, you're elected. In election, there's relationship. You are sanctified. That means, man, you have been set apart and you've been sprinkled by the blood, which means that you are cleansed and given purpose. Now, these three things, hear this, because we'll come back to this, were the process of what we term holiness. If something was holy, it's because it was first chosen, it was set apart, and it was sanctified and put to use for God's purpose holiness. So those are what is being described in the idea of who you are. He's saying, listen, pilgrim, you've been chosen, you've been set apart, and you have been cleansed for his special purpose. In other words, howdy, pilgrims. You are chosen Man, you are a cut above and full of purpose. So in this temporary crazy world that we're in right now, I want you to remember two things. And he gives us two things in the remainder of his letter that I want to bring out to you today. Number one, look forward to coming attractions. Look forward to coming attractions. I don't know what you guys think if you ever go to a movie, but one of my favorite parts of going to the theater is the coming attractions. I, you know what? Sometimes people want to eliminate those. They try and miss those. When my wife and I go, we go get the popcorn and the soda, and I don't mind sitting in there 15, 20 minutes early just to watch the coming attractions. By the time those are over, I usually need a refill on my popcorn for the rest of the movie but I love the coming attractions. I don't know what it is, but I like to see a glimpse of what's coming in the future because it might give me hope to watch something good later on, right? So, so we'll have these coming attractions. I'll be like, oh, that's really good. That's really good. By the end of the movie, I usually don't remember. And then when we're leaving, I'll say to my wife, what was that one? You remember that one where the guy did this or that? I want to make sure that we watch that when that comes out, you know? So, so I, I can try and remember what it is that will lead me to the destination to be able to watch that when, when it's released, right? And so th this is kind of like, 
how I function. I don't know why. Last night, my wife and I were sitting on the couch, and it's getting late, and we're watching TV. And she says, you know what? Here's the remote. Now, she usually wants to watch some sort of like home rebuilders or flip-flop, whatever those shows are, because they put her to sleep. Cooking channels, you know, so she can sleep on those kinds of things. And so our, our DVR wasn't working, and we turned on Netflix, and she goes, well, watch whatever you want. An hour later, she wakes up, and she goes, what are you watching? Oh, my gosh, you're still viewing all of the movies that are available? <laughs> yeah. Rather than spend two hours watching a movie, I'll spend two hours viewing just the preview of everything that's on Netflix. I, I have a little bit of information about every movie that's out there right now. That's all I need to know, right? There's something about the coming attractions that has always grabbed my attention. You know, I watch, I, I typically read the headlines of the news, not usually the articles of the news. You know, there's enough bad stuff out there. I don't really want to get into the details. I'll just see what the headline says. You know what? When uh, some of you may not know this, but uh, there's a chicken war that's going on in this world. Chicken war. It started with Chick-fil-A growing to become a very successful restaurant. And then Popeye's decides, you know what, we're going to produce a chicken sandwich that is going to blow Chick-fil-A away. And so a couple of years ago, they produced a chicken sandwich that depending on, on what you like for chicken and if you're on the biased, you know, Popeye has this great chicken sandwich. So they turned their business around based upon the chicken sandwich. Now every restaurant in America is putting out a basic chicken sandwich. Genius. You don't even have to have lettuce and tomato that goes to waste in your restaurant. Slap a little mayonnaise and pickle under two pieces of bread with a chicken patty, and you've got a chicken sandwich that everybody in the world wants right now, and there's a shortage on chicken, right? And so you got all these chicken sandwiches coming out, and I get caught up in the chicken war. So once a week, Daryl and I, we go to get supplies. He gets for Meals on Wheels, and I get them for my coffee stand, and we go to the new restaurant that has the new chicken sandwich whenever there's one that comes out. Three weeks ago, I read an article that Burger King, I don't even like Burger King, I've ate there like three times in my life, is coming out with one of the top three chicken sandwiches ever. I'm like, dude, June 3rd, we're at Burger King to try the new chicken sandwich. June 3rd was Thursday. Guess where we were? Burger King to try the new chicken sandwich. I can tell you this, it wasn't in one of the top three. But I want you to understand, beyond this talk of, of movies and Netflix and fast food, is a point. The coming attraction empowered me to get to a destination on a certain date. It was the coming attraction that I was looking forward to that helped drive me to make sure, no matter what happened, I was at a certain place when it was all said and done. And what Peter tries to do in this letter and in this chapter is give us a preview of coming attractions so that Christians have something to look forward to, something to hold on to, something to anticipate that will help empower them to reach a certain destination at a certain time in life, the return of Jesus, or maybe their end, and they go to Jesus. And so you'll see this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, the coming attractions. He says, blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy, everybody say abundant mercy, 
you know, this whole thing started with his abundant mercy. If it wasn't for that, we wouldn't even be here today. According to his abundant mercy, he has begotten us again. We were born again to a living hope, a living hope. We're alive and we have hope to continue to look to and hold on to through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. What is Peter saying? We're born again to a living hope, that we should have this eager anticipation of a coming attraction. And what is that coming attraction? It is an eternal inheritance. An eternal inheritance. Like, for all that you could want and desire in this life, Many of us probably had a picture in our teens or our 20s of what life would look like and what it is that we wanted to hold on to and, and these dreams of grandeur in life. And, and maybe even now in life, there's still this perception or this idea. But you know what? All that the world has to offer is corruptible. It fades away. It will not last. And yet Peter wants us to understand something more valuable than anything on this earth will be a treasure. There will be an inheritance waiting for us who have chosen to accept Jesus Christ into our lives and have served him faithfully. And it is a treasure that is beyond our imagination because it is not corruptible. It is not defilable. That it will not fade away. He can't describe what it is necessarily in this writing, but he tells us what it's not. Those three things should give us hope. They're not going to lose value because they've become corrupted. They will never be defiled, and it will never just simply fade away over time. Why? Because it is in a reservation for us. It's reserved for you and I. I could give you an idea of some of the things that that treasure holds stored up for us in treasures in heaven. Many people will often think, you know, it's about the mansion that's talked about. But truly, it's about the glory of our God. See, the life of a pilgrim isn't just about avoiding the agonies of hell. It's about experiencing the future glories of heaven. A perfect inheritance. Something to look forward to. In verse 6, he continues, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, for a little while in your life right now, he's saying. Life is, is short, and so for a little while while you're here upon this earth, if need be, everybody say if need be. If need be, you've been grieved by various trials. I'm not going to make a, a sermon out of this aspect of what he's written, but what he is saying, Peter who walked with Jesus, was called by God and wrote by the unction of the Holy Spirit, would say that, you know what, life is short, and if need be, you're going to go through some grieving in life. And you may need that grieving in life. And we don't want to hear that. Like, there's some people who have, have a, a different belief in faith that would say, we don't have to go through those things. We don't have to face that. We don't need to grieve. The truth is, there is a, a blessing to grieving that we don't want to 
acknowledge. But however far you are in your grieving, however far down you go, the greater you appreciate how high Jesus brings you in life. I don't know if I said that right. I want you to sound like that. But if I've experienced great grief, the greater ability I have to experience great joy. If I've experienced great grief, you know what? I don't need a whole lot of things to give me joy in life because I've experienced some depths of life. I don't need a bunch of people praising me or a bunch of things in my life to to bring that joy out because I know what it's like to be in the depths on the other side. There's some people, he says, if need be, you will experience grief in those various trials because some of us need to experience grief in life. And that's kind of the myth of Christianity is like, you know what, it's thought that strong Christians never really need to grieve. Like there's this, this idea that somehow we're supposed to be like Superman and for every bullet that gets shot at me, it just bounces off of my chest. It's, it's never going to hurt me. But the truth is you need grief in life. And if you need it, God will allow you to experience that grief. But I want to describe to you the words of Charles Spurgeon, who I think was a great preacher in his day when he described it like this. He says, indeed, it is the honor of faith. Everybody say the honor of faith. It is the honor of faith to be tried. And we don't want to admit that, do we? It is an honor to be tried, tested. It is the honor of faith to be tried, and here's why. Shall any man say, I have faith, but I've never had to believe under difficulties? Who knows whether thou hast any faith? Shall a man say, I have great faith in God, but I've never had to use it in anything more than the ordinary affairs of life, where I probably could have done without it as well as with it? Is this to the honor and praise of your faith? Dost thou think that such a faith as this will bring any great glory to God or bring to you any great reward? So if thou art, if so, thou art mistaken. Through the trying of our faith, if need be, to even grieve, The coming attraction that is being described by Peter is a faith that in the end will praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is through the trials and the grieving that perfects our faith. How many want to have a perfected faith in Jesus Christ? Verse 8, whom having not seen, so he's telling them you haven't seen Jesus in person. Whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. So the love and joy that you've experienced in the now is simply but a preview. It's a small glimpse, it's the coming attraction of the salvation of your souls. 
Now, there might be some people that are sitting here right now, and you're thinking, you know what? I thought salvation came when I received Jesus Christ into my life. And that's true. Salvation did come when you received Jesus Christ in your life. But how many people stop at the idea of just salvation is going to get me to heaven and don't realize that the fullness of what salvation is is the completeness of your soul? And some people would say, well, I I have that, you know, do we not have that completeness now? I don't know. Are you truly able to express joy in all circumstances? To have inexpressible joy in various trials? Are you able to give God thanks in everything that takes place in life? Are you just like this bulletproof Christian that never goes down but is always up and that everything that you've ever dealt with in life is healed, it's gone, it doesn't affect you right now, that you are some superhero of the faith? If not, then it's quite possible that you have not received the fullness of the salvation of your soul because that doesn't happen until Jesus returns. Now, I do want to get to a place where I will never hurt, have sorrow, nor grief, nor tear in my life, but I'm not there yet. I got to tell you, it's a coming attraction though, and I look forward to the day when I can walk that out. It gives me hope to know there will be no more death, no more sorrow, because everybody that's there will have the salvation, the wholeness of their souls. That is something, a coming attraction to hold on to, a living hope, a perfect inheritance, a perfected faith, and a perfected soul. The coming attractions that we have set before us to empower us to reach a certain destination at a given time. Verse 10, Peter writes, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully. When he's talking about the prophets, you gotta understand he's talking about the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophets, they've inquired and they searched this out carefully. This salvation that I'm, I'm talking about right now. Those who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. They prophesied of this grace that would be given. Searching what, like how, or what manner of time. The spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. You mean there's glories that would follow? Yeah, there's glories that would follow. The glories that would follow to them, it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which have now been reported to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. What's that describing? He's describing that the Old Testament prophets, for all of their writings and all of their ministering, it was revealed to them that their writings and their ministerings wasn't necessarily just for the people of their day, but they were ministering to a people who would come to a glory that would come, to a grace that would come. And what Peter is saying is that that time frame, that glory, that grace, that goodness is right now. They were writing and ministering to you who have heard the good news of Jesus Christ. 
Yeah, we have these indescribable coming attractions that we can hold on to that give us a hope, but we have to understand in the right here, the right now, no matter what it is that we face in life and that we're going through, that it is because of his grace that has come to him, to come to us, that we have been born again by his abundant mercy, that we have this life available to us. It is something that the Old Testament prophets could only see a preview of. It was a coming attraction to them. They longed to experience the arrival of a Savior. They longed to experience the good news of Jesus Christ. They longed to experience what it would have meant to be a chosen one by grace, a cut above by the Spirit of God, and full of purpose through the blood of Jesus Christ. For them, that was a coming attraction. For you and I, we live in their coming attraction. It is what gave them hope. It's what kept driving them forward. They could not wait to see a day. And we live in that day, in that life, right now. And doesn't that say something to us about the way life should be? How joyful we should be in this life? And of course, yes, we haven't reached our, our best life yet. When Jesus returns, we'll get that. However, we know there will be greater days ahead, but we know that we have the goodness of God available to us right here, right now. His abundant mercy and his forever grace, and should that not be reflected in the way we live our lives? So the second aspect of the life of a pilgrim Number one, look forward to coming attractions. Number two is, is truly understand your foreign lifestyle, a foreign lifestyle. In verse 13, he says this, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace, everybody say grace, that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. And if you call on the father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. I love how he words that. Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here. How many has ever heard? I hope you enjoy your stay here. When is that typically said? When you're just temporarily at a place. In the time that you're here, conduct yourself in fear. Now, not fear, of course, like the enemy wants to give us, but a respect for the Lord. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, just real quick, I want to take us back to the previous verses for a second for you to really understand this. Your life in Christ right now was a coming attraction to the Old Testament prophets. It is something also that Peter writes the angels desire to look into. Do we even understand how good of a life we have right now? 
Like, no matter what we're going through in life, no matter what we're facing or what we're feeling, like, we are the coming attraction for people in the Old Testament. Not only that, but the angels who were created beings that are in heaven right now, Peter is saying, you know what? What you are living right now is something so great, so grand, that they are peering into it. They're inquisitive. They want to know. They are simply amazed at the redemption of mankind. They cannot believe that you were once this person that was walking away from God, and not of your own accord, but because of the goodness, the grace, and the mercy of God. He has flipped people around to be completely opposite, to move in another direction. And they are peering down, and they're like, whoa, wow, I cannot believe. Do you know what that person once did, the life that they once lived, and now how they're serving God, they're loving God. They're growing in relationship with God. The angels in heaven are amazed at what is taking place. They're inquisitive. They want to learn more about this. This is what Peter is describing here. Look at the life, the redemption of mankind right here, right now. But a glimpse to Old Testament people. They wanted what you have available to you. Angels in heaven, in heaven, are like blown away at the life that we have available to us right here, right now. And then add to that, that when you were redeemed, you were not redeemed with money. You were not redeemed with something from this world that would become corrupted, defiled, or fade away. That you weren't redeemed because you know what, someone was nice to you and decided they'd go ahead and, and help you out and bring you, it had nothing to do with you or anybody around you, but that you were redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And if he died for us, should we not live for him? Peter wrote, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. Like, like, don't continue to go the way that you went before you knew who Jesus was. Before you know who Je knew who Jesus was, you, you walked in ignorance. Now you've accepted Christ. There should be a difference in your life. You're not dumb anymore. You've got the Spirit of God inside of you. There is another way to go. And so he says, don't, don't be ignorant. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Now listen, I don't want us to get this idea because this is a common misperception. That be holy is just about moral purity because it's not. Now, I don't want to say it's not included in the context of be holy, but it's not to just the exclusion of moral purity. There's so much more to it than that. Be holy as he is holy is knowing who you are. Let me put it to you the same way I did at the beginning of this sermon. To be holy as he is holy is to be elect, is to be set apart, and is to be 
washed by the blood of the Lamb. If you remember when I described how he introduced his letter, he said, listen, pilgrims, don't forget that you are chosen. You were chosen so that you could be set apart, sanctified, and put together for a special purpose. And when you think about the utensils again in the temple or whatever it was, the table of showbread that, that would sit inside of the temple, it was just a common table at one time, but then it was chosen. And when it was chosen, it was then set apart. And when it was set apart, it was, there was a purity to it, and it was used for a special purpose, and that was for God's purpose. And that whole process of being chosen, set apart, and cleansed for a special purpose is the whole idea of what it means to be holy. So the utensils were holy. The table was holy. Everything in the temple was holy. So this idea of what it means to be holy as God is holy isn't just about moral purity. It's about understanding the fact that you have been chosen to be set apart in order to be cleansed so that you can serve a special purpose for God. Be holy as he is holy. That's the fullness of holiness. Know who you are and your life will stand out because you're obviously foreign to this world. Now, in order to do this, Peter says we need to do three things. Real quick. Number one, gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. What does that mean? The idea in this phrase is that you would prepare for action. Put it in modern-day John Wayne terms, roll up your sleeves right? You know what? You've got somebody that said something bad about you and it's hurting your feelings. We know what? You've been chosen. You have been set apart and you have been purified for a purpose. I tell you what, roll up your sleeves. When you are going through something that you are physically struggling, you know what? Roll up your sleeves. When you've got challenges in relationships in life with the people around you, he's saying, listen, man, pilgrim, you have been chosen, that you have been set aside, that you have been been given a purpose. Roll up your sleeves. What is he saying when it comes to rolling up your sleeves to gird up the loins of your mind? That you've got to get rid of loose and sloppy thinking and take control of what you think about. The second thing that goes with that idea of girding up the loins of your mind is be sober. The Bible is very clear about being sober. It's not the first time that it's used because the anti-biblical idea of this would be to not be sober and have periods of your life where you're out of control. You're not fully in control. And so he says, listen, I want you to be free from every form of a loss of self-control. You know what that would mean? That would mean that I want to be free from every form where I've lost control emotionally. You need to be in self-control of your emotions, control of your emotions. That I want to be free of any time I've lost control of, of my thinking. I want to be in control of my thoughts. Bring them unto, unto the obedience of Christ. I bring them unto the obedience of Christ. My physical actions, I want to be free from the loss of self-control. I've got to be sober in my mind, my emotions, and my will. 
Sometimes we lose control spiritually and we start going in another direction. Be free from the loss of self-control spiritually. Grab hold. Grab hold of who he is. The final thing is rest your hope fully. Everybody say fully. Rest your hope fully on the grace that is coming soon. Now, what happens when we just rest our, our hope partially? We're tossed about by every wave, by the wind, by everything that happens around us because we only rest our hope partially on the grace that comes with Jesus. And he's saying, listen, you've got to lay that thing down completely. Rest your hope completely, fully on the grace that is coming, on the grace, the grace. The only way we will be able to stand before Jesus on the day of his return will be because of his unmerited favor that he gives and he continues to give. I want you to understand that his grace, what's being described here, isn't just for when we first gave our lives to Jesus. And it's not even just for this present moment. But what's being described is a grace that's even for our future. I truly believe that grace is one of those things that God gives that he'll never stop giving. That we have only just begun to know the riches of his grace in the here and the now. Finally, what good is holy living without love? Peter ends his letter with these words. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit, that's the holy living, in sincere love of the brethren. Sincere means that it's without hypocrisy, that it's not fake love, that it's not phony love, but sincere. It's real love of the brethren. Love one another fervently. You know, that's emotion. That's passion. That's visible. With a pure heart. A heart that's not defiled by bitterness or greed or manipulation. Having been born again. Now wait, so you got to have all these kinds of love because having been born again, it's, it's not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. Through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. But the grass withers and the flower, it falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. What's it mean to live as a foreigner? That you would gird up the loins of your mind. That you would roll up your sleeves. That you would live sober. That you would rest your hope upon the grace of Jesus Christ and that you would love sincerely 
fervently and with a pure heart. So if the word of God is as Peter quotes in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, it says, the word of the Lord endures forever. Then it is a word that we should be committed to. So, when it comes to the life of a pilgrim, hold your horses. Be empowered by looking forward to the coming attraction. And be obligated to living a foreign life. Pilgrim. Let's pray.